Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Colin Pine is an avid gardener as well as an educator and writer. His first book is a work of garden-based children's literature, The Garden Next Door, which is thought-provokingly illustrated by Tiffany Everett. Her detailed and specific artistry adds a rich layer to the already rich narrative of the book, and at its most philosophical, this story reminds us of the power of our gardens to support plant and animal life, as well as human community and pure delight, a delight that transcends age and the many distractions and misdirections as well as tragedies of our time. Colin, just in time for the winter solstice here in the Northern Hemisphere, I'm so happy to be in conversation with you about this lovely addition to our children's bookshelves, but also an addition to our own existential understanding somehow of the power of gardens and gardeners. Welcome to Cultivating Place, Colin. Thank you, Jennifer. It's so great to be here. I would love to get started by having you share with listeners your kind of a, a distilled version, a manifesto, if you will, of what plants and gardens mean in your life right now? That's that's such a great question. I think for me, plants and, and I guess specifically gardening uh, is a really, just a way to kind of keep tabs on the world around me um, with the seasonality of plants and gardening annuals and perennials, things coming and going um, in flux, whether they're blooming or not blooming. I think, yeah, the plants and, and gardening are a way to kind of keep me grounded in my local environment. And they're also a wonderful kind of reminder and a source of encouragement to be aware of the world around me. I love just being out in the world and seeing plants and, and kind of feeling like I'm walking amongst friends, seeing familiar mm-hmm. faces yeah. or some new faces. So for me, I think that's kind of where plants and, and gardening sits in my in my life. Yeah, I love it. And, you know, give us a little bit of your history and the people and places and plants who grew you into a, a person for whom being a teacher, but also being a writer and through that teaching in a different way uh, for an mm. even broader audience might have been important like who who were these people places and plants that grew you Colin yeah for me I I I was born and raised I grew up in western Pennsylvania originally in Pittsburgh but then my my family moved to a much more uh, rural and then suburban part of the state and specifically on my mother's side of the family it's it's a very um, I guess plant uh, centric part of the family, just in the essence of, you know, great grandmothers and, and grandparents, and then my own parents, you know, passing gladiola bulbs down from generation to generation and peonies and mm. um, raspberry cuttings. And um, I just have a very, you know, very distinct memories as a child of um, we lived, you know, it was a, just a small ranch uh, style house in, in the middle of a green massive lawn that was surrounded by forest but in the lawn was this kind of archipelago of flower beds and vegetable gardens and i talked a little bit about the seasonality of plants um 
just earlier, but, you know, kind of growing up in a place with four seasons where the plants are so striking from season to season and, and things are always happening. Um, even in winter time, um, it kind of left a, an impression on me as a child. My mother was very big into, into flowers and kind of hearing her rattle off names of flowers from a young age. It was kind of like a second language that I wanted to learn. And then for my father being more, uh, into the vegetable gardening. And I think one year we had, you know, more than 30 tomato plants. It was, we always just had a lot of vegetables as a child. It's just kind of um, magical to walk through uh, or walk around a, a vegetable garden like that with so many different colors and textures and, and just really amazing things. And so I think as I got older and older, my own interest kind of developed in, in wanting to, you know, create my own gardens and, and kind of have my own plants. Mm -hmm. I think that's what propelled me ultimately. I um, I did study environmental science in college. And where were you at college? I studied uh, at Allegheny College, which is a, a small liberal arts mm -hmm. college in northwestern Pennsylvania. Yeah. Okay. And it was 2009. I had the opportunity to, uh, through the National Science Foundation, uh, come out to California for the very first time. Ah. I, um, that was my first time west of Ohio. And uh I had the opportunity to spend a summer up at the Bodega Marine Laboratory oh, um, in Bodega Bay, yeah. which, you know, is just an amazing place. Um, and the kicker was I was there to, as an undergraduate uh, researcher, to do some research, um, you know, on ocean systems, given that it's a marine lab. But one of the most uh, kind of lasting impressions that those two months left on me was there was a there was an individual there and she was um like the groundskeeper, but she was just kind of tasked with uh, all things terrestrial at the marine lab. And we would go on hikes with her and she could just name every single plant that we would come across. And, and she was really the first person that I met like that. And it was just, I like, it was a superpower that I wanted to have. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. And so that she, she really kind of left an impression and, and kind of instilled this desire in me to, to be better at identifying plants and, being more aware of of just the life around me like you know not just always um the things that you see but sometimes having to get down low and <laughs> peek under other plants to see what's really going on and so that was a really wonderful summer um that i had here in california and what was her name just so that we name her sure her first name was jackie i would have to go back and check no, her last that's name okay. it's been Jackie's it's been a while yeah no but yeah. uh that gift from jackie modeling what it means to be someone who knows and acknowledges uh by mm -hmm. by some name uh the plants around them like that is a transformational moment in so many people's mm -hmm. lives and i i love that mm -hmm. you were able to share that here okay so keep going yeah so i um graduated college. And I think like a lot of, of young people who are in that position, there's kind of that, what if, mo like, you know, what do I do now? Right. Right. <laughs> um, and so for me, um, that led me to going into the Peace Corps, wow. um, which was a desire that I had to, to do some service and volunteering, but also a chance to, to kind of live in a different part of the world and, and really kind of partake in the Peace Corps goal of cross-cultural exchange. Mm -hmm. Um, and at that time, you know, Peace Corps was something you applied to with complete flexibility. I mean, it was just they would send you anywhere in the world. Nowadays, I think you can apply to a specific country. And so for me, I kind of went into it uh, just open to going wherever they would send me if they were willing to send me somewhere. And the place that they chose was uh, Cameroon, which is in the center of Africa. 
And so I, I left for Cameroon in August 2011, and I came back in November of 2013. Um, and it was just an unbelievably transformative experience wow. on so many levels. It must have been um, like, what an incredible <laughs> contrast, but also complement of plants and culture and climate. Yeah. Tell us, tell us yeah. about this, these two years. Yeah, it's uh, it's hard to kind of distill into, into a good, <laughs> um, you know, because it's it's there's so many layers. You know, as a, as a young person, I was I was 21, 22, 23 when I was there. Um, you don't know anything, <laughs> and uh, so you you experience these kind of really formative years in a really uh, challenging environment, and you grow so much. Um, and I think there's, you know, high highs and really low lows, just living by yourself for the first time yeah. and, and being in a, in such a, you know, a new place really. But uh, Cameroon as a country is just, it's unbelievable. It's, it's, I, I knew nothing about it before I left. Um, and for those listeners who, who aren't aware of Cameroon, it's located um, in like West Central Africa. It's, it's East of Nigeria. It has many neighbors, but uh, it's kind of right in the nook of, 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 of West Africa. Um and it's it's the same size as California. Um, Isn't that incredible? Yeah, it's incredible, and it kind of it goes up from the Atlantic, and it, it it kind of has this I don't know strange shape. It depends who you ask how they describe the shape. It's a, a witch's head or a turkey, but it goes up to Lake Chad um, in the north, and it has ten regions, and people call it Africa in miniature just because of all of the, the different um, ecosystems and environmental locales that are just there it has savanna grassland um the congo river basin it has uh, west africa's highest peak volcanoes black sand beaches uh it, it's just an un, uh, unbelievable country and the work i was doing there i was an agroforestry volunteer mm -hmm. and even though i had studied environmental science um you know a lot of what i had done as an undergraduate was just kind of you know theory and, and not so much practice right. and so you know, that's not uncommon, but then no. being on the ground um, and working with farmers and, and really learning about trees on a, on a more practical level, um, it was just really eye-opening to kind of see uh, what subsistence farming is like on the ground and, and to see the challenges firsthand. And then also to see like the real joys and, and wonder of, of doing some of the agroforestry practices that were already, um, you know, taking place over there. It was, it was, an, it was just, a, it was an amazing experience. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the the kind of forestry in terms of different trees, different, like, yeah. was it not just crop-based, but also restoration-based? Tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. Yeah. So it really, it was dependent on where we were living um, because of the diversity that I mentioned. Right. And so the agroforestry that volunteers were doing in the south of the country was very different than the kind of agroforestry we were doing in the north. Uh, where I live because, um, you know, with the, the Sahara Desert, uh, desertification is a, is a really big challenge mm -hmm. with the encroaching desert. And so a lot of the work that we were doing was with just planting trees, really, uh, to try to reclaim some of that earth and then prevent the desert from from further encroaching. Um, but then absolutely, there were uh, trees that we would use um, alongside crops um, with alley cropping and cover crops. Uh, the most popular species that we worked with, there's a species of tree called Moringa oleifera that has gained some popularity here in the States. It's kind of like a superfood that the leaves have all kinds of nutritious benefits. Um, but the trees themselves are also really good just for soil health as well. 
as nutrition. And so we would do a lot of work with um, farmers to plant moringa because um, it, it grows so well there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's originally from the Indian subcontinent, but uh, kind of does well across the, the tropics. And then honestly, it's hard to disentangle um, agroforestry from other, um, you know, public health and, and, and different programs that the Peace Corps has. And so honestly, most of my work was kind of at the intersection of public health and, and agroforestry. We worked a lot with um, women's groups and, and planting soy. In the, in the village that I lived in, protein deficiency was a major challenge, especially among pregnant women and women with young children. And the culture there is a herding culture. They have a lot of cattle, but culturally the way that um, meals are kind of shared is that portions are much smaller when it comes to meat than we think of in the States. Um, so there's a small amount of meat in each dish. And then um, kind of the order of who eats first, it goes men. And then um, after the men, then the women and the children eat. And so by the time those women, especially the pregnant and, and young mothers, um, by the time they're eating, there's not typically much meat left. Um, and so we, we did a lot of soy outreach with growing soy and then showing people how to make tofu and soy milk and using soy flour and recipes that already existed um, over there. So it, it's it's not as uh, fancy as, as doing some tree work, but uh, in terms of impact, it was it was pretty uh, fulfilling to see, um, you know, plumper babies and, and, <laughs> and happier mothers. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Colin Pine is an avid gardener as well as an educator and writer. His first book is a work of garden-based children's literature entitled The Garden Next Door. The book and its story-full illustrations by Tiffany Everett reminds us that all of our gardens are next door to someone and that they have the potential to grow not only plants but community of all kinds. We'll be right back to Colin's garden life journey. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the rich intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Hey, it's Jennifer. A very, very happy solstice season to you all, near and far, on the longest night and the shortest day, or the shortest night and the longest day. It is the planet beneath our feet that universally grounds and connects us. We're back now to our conversation with gardener, educator, and children's book author Colin Pine, sharing more about the germination story behind his children's book, The Garden Next Door. Colin's story and journey to where he is now included, among many other things, some wonderful teachers and a transformative two-and-a-half-year period in Cameroon with the Peace Corps, learning the Cameroonian ways of agroforestry and seeing very tangibly the interdependence between human health and well-being and the ways and means of caring for both wild and tended plants. As we come back, Colin takes us on the journey of becoming an educator and now writer as well. 
So I came back to, at that time, Western Pennsylvania. My service, my contract ended um, at the end of November. So almost actually 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, growing up in Western Pennsylvania, we had cold winters. But uh, I think after living in the tropics, as long as I did, you know, where 90, 95 degrees actually felt cold to me because village life was, you know, could get up into the 110s, 115s. I came back to Pennsylvania and there were like, you know, polar vortexes and it was, it was a really cold winter. <laughs> and I, I remember, I think I lasted for maybe two or three months kind of just popping around the, the mid Atlantic and seeing some friends on the East coast. And I was plotting my next steps. And uh, for me, it wasn't that hard to decide where I was going to go. I, I had that experience in Bodega Bay and had always really, from the very first time I was in San Francisco, felt a really strong connection to the city. And, um, you know, personally, as, as, a, as a gay man, I came out and then very quickly went to Cameroon. And, and for all the wonderful aspects of Cameroon, one real challenge um, for me was just it was it's a very difficult place to be LGBTQ, uh, really kind of aggressive, violent, you know, constitutionally on the books, like a not safe place. And so for me, um, purchasing a one-way ticket to San Francisco made sense. Yeah. So I, I had no job, um, <laughs> no real plan. So it wasn't making sense for your parents, but it made sense for you, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but, you know, it, I think all the players involved, I think, felt a sense of ease because, you know, having having made it through 28 months of living in Cameroon, right. you know, like I knew getting on a plane and coming to San Francisco with with two bags and all of my winter coats that like I would have running water and electricity and people spoke you know, the language. Like, right. Yeah, you know, all felt scary yeah. anymore. Wow. That's <laughs> that's monumental, Colin. That's fantastic. OK. Yeah, it was a uh, it, it wasn't as big of a leap as it, it might have been if it would have happened first, you know. Mm. Um, and so I, I got to San Francisco. Um, I lived my best friend from college and her husband had kind of moved out here um, before me. And then so I was able to live on their couch rent free for a few months as I got my feet underneath me. And then ultimately, I, I kind of bopped around different jobs. Um, first in Oakland, I worked as an environmental consultant. And then I worked at a nonprofit for a little bit. And on a whim with a coworker, I took a, um, it was like an online journalism class. It was called Journalism for Social Change. It was one of those big MOOCs, like a massive online class offered through edX and, and Berkeley Extension. And I'd always been interested in journalism, um, but I never really acted on it. And it was through this online class that kind of lit this fire and kind of in me. And within a matter of like six months, I, I had like quit my job and decided to become a freelance journalist, which looking back was a horrible idea financially. <laughs> and just, you know, like <laughs> it made zero sense. But again, you know, like after after Peace Corps, nothing really seemed scary. So I was able to make that work. And I got hired as a as a a uh, local news editor um, in San Francisco covering Castro news and I worked my way up to a staff writer and then an editor. And really I, I enjoyed being a journalist so much in the city. It was kind of a way for me to keep my pulse on, on the city and really kind of get a sense of place and then feel connected to the world around me. Okay. Um, yeah. But it was one of those things where not, not necessarily I felt burned out, but it just kind of had run its course with me. I think that for me coming into the pandemic, especially I was looking for, a way to to work with people uh, in a more formative way, and then I ultimately transitioned to teaching. And so I I, I just recently um, became a, a teacher. I, I teach at community colleges, um, English to speakers of other languages, and uh, 
and that's what I do today. I work um, over here in the East Bay with adults who are just so amazing and wonderful and and just incredible people. Yeah. So what does one do to become a teacher at that level? Right. So a master's degree is required um, to teach at community colleges. And so I, I was able to get my master's degree. Um, you know, it's kind of, it's funny. I mean, I, when I decided to go back in or not go back into, but rather pivot to teaching, one of my reasons was to get away from my computer. Um, <laughs> I, I was, you know, working on stories and, you know, just like, you know, late night staring at your screen, early morning staring at your screens and um, was looking to divorce that. And then I, I got accepted into this program at San Francisco State and then spent the next, um, like many of us, two years on Zoom completing my program uh, from across the Bay. Um, so I got my master's from SF State and then uh, that that allows me to work with adult learners at community colleges. Yeah. Okay. So somewhere along the line here, uh, there is also <laughs> a, a gardening uh, parallel thread. Where does the gardening parallel thread come in? Because I believe you are also a gardener and a tender yeah. of plants and backyard creatures, specifically birds, I believe. So so tell us how <laughs> this thread uh, becomes animated in your adult life, Colin. Yeah, that's such a wonderful question. Um, so the moment I touched down, I think, in San Francisco, um, one of the things that that kind of just blew my mind that I hadn't really seen when I was here at Bodega Bay, um, just given the, the the climate differences that we have mm -hmm. uh, here in the Bay Area, was just everything that grows in this area. I mean, you you walk down the street and you see, um, you know, a lemon tree next to a Proteaceae. Um, any plant from like any kind, it just seems to thrive here. It really does. It's a crazy place to visit because you're, you know, especially coming from where I come from, which is three mm. hours directly east. You you think, <laughs> oh. I could grow that. Like, I don't live that far away. And uh, it's a uh, terrible, uh, terrible delusion that leads to the death <laughs> of many plants. <laughs> so don't do it. Don't do it. But it is amazing to see the whole global plant palette in one small city. Yeah. 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 And so for me, um, my landed in the Mission District is where I, my first apartment was. And uh, it's a very sunny area of the city. And a friend of mine at the time um, moved into an apartment just around the corner by chance and had this, I don't know, like it was, it was kind of a backyard, but not really. It was just kind of a, a concrete rectangle, but you know, on the perimeter, there was just these crazy, I don't, they were some kind of blackberry or some, some weedy, you know, Jasmine was in there too, I think. Um, and she gave me the green light to kind of clear that out and, and to start a garden and, I was, I mean, I was just coming from Cameroon. So I was, I was doing different gardening practices than I do now. So I think my only tool was a machete. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and and I, I cleared out the, the kind of the vegetation and the, put in tomatoes and zucchini. And I kind of just, you know, grew what I knew from growing up and uh, had my first little urban garden experience um, in San Francisco. And it was it was wonderful. People would, you know, friends would be back there and, you know, people expressed interest and, and maybe who hadn't had a childhood like mine, which was kind of surrounded by plants and kind of seeing people light up for the first time to see, you know, what a zucchini plant looks like or to see how tomatoes grow on a vine. And so I had a wonderful few years uh, gardening there. And then I moved over to the East Bay um, 
oh geez, at this point I've lost track of time, but I've been here for a number of years. Mm -hmm. Um, And when we moved into the house that we're in now here um, in Oakland, I think like commonplace when you move into a new place, uh, you know, whoever has listed the place has done some landscaping, we'll say that. And uh, uh, we moved into the house, I should say, the backyard was just realtor sod um, with some kind of sad little, I don't even know what kind of trees they were, but they weren't happy trees um, (laughs) stuck in the corners. Um, You know, I think they were still like halfway out of the ground. They weren't even put in very nicely. So my husband and I, we, we kind of set out to really transform that patch of grass uh, into, into something that was, you know, more welcoming both to us and also to wildlife and set out on this kind of transformation of initially ripping out the perimeter and placing mainly native plants. So here that, that was a lot of Pacific wax myrtles and toyones or Hollywood um, sword ferns and um, various sedges and, and flowering plants. And then even just tiny plants, like, you know, once they went in the ground, it didn't take long for um, insects to show up. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden we didn't have any mature trees in our yard, but our neighbors did. And then all of a sudden having birds visiting our yard that weren't there before. And over the years, you know, putting in raised beds and, and having those plants mature more and more, and then relandscaping the front yard, it, it kind of just turned into this little, mostly native oasis, um, that has just been a, a source of joy for both of us. And I think that was especially the case, like most, you know, most people who garden during the pandemic, you know, it was just such a nice uh, escape to be able to go into the backyard at such a, you know, tumultuous and uncertain time and kind of have those flowers and those plants and that wildlife to be a source of, you know, reminder that, you know, that everything was kind of okay. <laughs> Um, and kind of giving a sense of calm that came with that. But the, there's no there's no question that in terms of the book um, that I'm sure we'll get to here soon, um, the, the germination story or the inspiration story of, of the book is very much rooted in our backyard. Yeah, yeah. So one question before we dive into that part of the conversation, uh, mm. is your husband an equal gardener with you or less interested, more interested, just about, you know? Where, where does he fit in the hierarchy of the, the gardening staff there? Oh, that's, that's, that's a fantastic question. And, it, and it's, um, so my husband, he, he's a, he's a biologist. He's an entomologist oh. um, at UC Berkeley. And, and so he, he is somebody who very much inspires me. I mentioned Jackie from 2009 in Bodega Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like if, if, if Jackie and my husband, Noah and myself were on a hike, I would just like, I would know nothing like the two, like, you know, Noah, he knows every plant, every insect. It's, it's just so impressive um, to, to spend time with them in nature. That's great. <laughs> and so, whereas I feel like I get more joy out of like getting my hands in the dirt and um, you know, d- doing uh, the manual labor, um, that's not necessarily his, his cup of tea, but uh, in terms of uh, appreciating the wildlife and, and kind of having ideas about what to do. Um, I think we're definitely equals in that aspect. That's great. And was your learning curve about the native plants that would be well-suited to the Bay Area a, a long one? Was it important to you right from the outset? I mean, you've mentioned that it's predominantly native. Uh, wh- where did that both the learning, but also the desire stem from? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. I'm not, I'm not sure there was kind of like a, 
um, a specific, you know, uh, conversation that we had, we sat down and decided it. I think mm-hmm. it was just maybe like a little bit more, um, it, it just felt right. Yeah. I think that in terms of like, uh, especially when we were settling into our place here in the East Bay, um, you know, California was in a pretty serious, uh, drought mm-hmm. and, you know, water was a really big, uh, concern of ours and so kind of wanting to stick with native made sense just because you know plants being well adapted to drought conditions um seemed like the kind of plants that we needed to go with anyway um but yeah that's that's a wonderful question i'm not sure that there was like kind of a a explicit decision that we that we made um or if it was just kind of uh the direction that we naturally steered steered ourselves down well i love that partly because we hear from so many people, I hear from so many people who are transforming their gardens into mm. more native, predominantly native. Mm. But to hear someone from the outset just, you know, assume as part mm. of their uh, ingrained thinking that it would be predominantly mm. native is a beautiful mm. normalization of this mm. movement in our gardening world that we are, are working so hard to see more of. And so hmm. to hear it just be the thing is you're, we're sort of like, okay, that's where we need yeah. to be. And, <laughs> um, and it is apparent through illustration predominantly, but through the text of your book as well. So let's move to hmm. the germination story of the <laughs> garden next door. This is a a beautiful kind of large format illustrated picture and storybook. Who who would you say was the target age group uh at the at, at least at the first level, Colin? So so the 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 target demographic for this book in terms of ages would be Three probably at the youngest to seven um, would be would be the age range, but then I mean the wonderful thing about children's books too is uh, you know as much as children should be encouraged to sit down with a book for themselves and, and flip through pages um, and enjoy the illustrations, especially um, oftentimes children's books are paired with a reader, and so uh, um, also when we set out on this project, we knew that it wasn't going to just be. <laughs> three to seven year olds reading the book, but it would be um, parents and guardians um, and loved ones and friends um, also reading the book. Right. Uh, so it was, it was a pretty large uh, age range. <laughs> yeah. And so tell us the germination story, but then also tell us the story because there are so many um, aspects of your personal story that I see mm. uh, rooted here. Mm. So, so the story came about uh, really really by chance. Um, and I love how you say germination story, by the way, guys, it's, it's so, it captures it so well. Um, but it, it goes back to, uh, 2020. Um, and we were, you know, it was during the pandemic and, um, my husband and I, he's, he's a professor at UC Berkeley. So we were preparing to go, um, uh, professors are granted sabbatical. So we were preparing to, to leave for a number of months and drive across the country. And, we stopped uh, to visit one of his best friends in Minneapolis. We were, we were heading to Vermont from Oakland and um, his best friend, his best friend's name is John um, had worked for um, a publisher for, for decades and decades since they had graduated from college together. And because of the circumstances of the pandemic had been laid off um, and he was in a position to kind of um, choose his next step and figure out a way to turn lemons into lemonade 
And for him, that turned out to be launching his own uh, kind of independent children's press oh. um, called River, River Horse Books. And um, as he was thinking about how he could get started with this, he needed um, kind of a suite of books to, to first launch and um, completely caught me off guard and blindsided me, you know, in the best way possible, <laughs> but asked ask me if I would be interested in, in writing a children's book and I think many people actually do have the idea that they would like to write a children's book. I don't, I don't know why that's a natural thought for humans to have. So I had thought about it, but never really thought to act on it. And so when he asked me that, I was like, are you John, like, do you really want me to do this? Like I've never written a book before. And he was like, you, you've written before. And I was like, as a journalist, you know, like covering like development, you know, like housing and like homelessness in San Francisco. And he's like, but you're creative. You can do it. And I was like, if you if you really feel like you you trust me with this, then I'm happy to to take my you know my best shot at it. And it was an unbelievable opportunity. Looking back, um, how it fell into my lap. Um, I know children's publishing and, and children's literature is is very difficult to kind of um, enter that space. Yeah. And to kind of have the the freedom and the liberty from him to kind of just run with whatever story I felt like I wanted to tell it's 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 I think unheard of <laughs> This is Cultivating Place I'm Jennifer Jewell We're in conversation this week with Colin Pine an avid gardener as well as an educator and writer His first work of children's literature is The Garden Next Door thought-provokingly illustrated by Tiffany Everett. The book is a lovely addition in both word and image to our children's bookshelves, informing how our children grow. But perhaps even more importantly, it is an addition to our collective existential understanding of the power of gardens and gardeners to grow the world better. We'll be right back to more with Colin after a quick break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again. You know, while the planet grounds us together, its gentle but swift turning also universally reminds us that change is the only constant. The plants that clothe this planet, providing us with all that we need, have great lessons of adaptation and evolution, of seasonality, of periods of growth offset by periods of rest to offer to us. Let's keep learning from them on this next circle around the sun. Let's keep learning from our plants together, shall we? I will meet you there. We're back now to our conversation with gardener, educator, and children's book author Colin Pine, sharing more about his journey to writing The Garden Next Door, illustrated by Tiffany Everett. As we come back, Colin is sharing more about the process and experience of working with the relatively new children's book press, River Horse Books. So John, he gave me full kind of creative uh, license. You know, he was like, think about what you're passionate about. Think about what you're interested in and and kind of see where the story goes from there 
or see what see what stories kind of grow out of there. And I mean, I don't even think I had a short list of three story ideas. I think this was really the one that I knew I wanted to do. Um, it was just thinking about our own experience with our backyard and, and kind of my own childhood of um, of being surrounded by plants. It was the story that I wanted to tell, just kind of these three kids um, who are just bored. You know, they're sitting in a cookie cutter, manicured, uh, green grass backyard. And at first, you know, a hummingbird kind of appears and it catches them by surprise. And um, they decide to follow it and they chase it across the yard and it uh, flies over the fence and, and out of sight. And then I think a swallowtail comes and, and does the same thing. And, and then a couple of dragonflies and everything just seems to be leaving their yard and going over the fence and it changes to night and uh, they see the the flickering of, of, of fireflies outside and they run outside. And, and once again, it's not in their yard, but in the, in the yard next door. And they ultimately hatch this plan to, and I, and I don't condone doing this, but they had to hatch a plan to peer over the fence. And when they do that, they, they, they find this neighbor who has, you know, curated this magical garden and she invites them over and, and kind of shows them around and there's this series of um, kind of insects and pollinators paired with plants that she shows them and um, they themselves are, are spotting things that they've never seen before and uh, this leads them to just you know kind of wondering what they can do to to have butterflies and, and birds and insects visit their yard instead of always flying over the fence and the neighbor just encourages them to plant their own tiny patch of, of flowers. And, and in the end she helps them and they go home and get, get their parents permission to, to plant a tiny pollinator patch. And, and the last page is kind of uh, captures it all. You know, they're, they're standing by this beautiful flower um, bed and then there's butterflies and bees and hummingbird. And it's, it's, it's very cute. <laughs> it's very, very cute, but it is full it is full of, through the illustrations, um, full of so much more. It is a very rich narrative, period. But mm. paired mm. with the illustrations, it is a parable for our times. Mm. And a oh. uh, parable for our times about what it means to be a child, what is lost, what we could refind, uh, what mm. it is to be a, a backyard, uh, what it is to be human on this planet mm. um mm. tell us a little bit about how you worked with the illustrator tiffany everett on um really fleshing out this storyline and these these two very distinct spaces the the bored children's back garden with the uh with the gardener's back garden mm. Mm. one of the um, most fulfilling and, and exciting um, aspects of this project was was working with Tiffany. Um, it, just kind of being in collaboration with another uh, creative, it's 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 hard to kind of put into words what that feels like. But to kind of, um, I, I think I've already used the word superpower, but I, <laughs> I definitely feel as though writing is one of my superpowers. I, I feel very uh, lucky and privileged and gifted to to have been bestowed. That is one of my gifts, but to work with somebody who, who has an equal superpower and can, can tell stories in different ways that I can't. And then to come together, it was, it was just so, so cool. And so I, I feel very fortunate uh, when, when I was presented with a, a list of illustrators and I spent time on their portfolios and looking to see who I, I thought um, could 
bring this story to life in a way that resonated with me. Um, Tiffany was at the top of the list. Uh, she had previously published some things and had just a really amazing ability to to bring nature and wildlife and plants alive in a way that was like adorable, but also like like scientifically accurate, which mm-hmm. was, you know, was was important for me in this book was that it wasn't just, you know, cute caricatures of, of birds and insects and plants, but like I wanted them to also be real. Like I wanted them to look exactly like they look yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in the real world well, um, because I knew that some people would appreciate that. Yeah. And and even those people that don't know they're appreciating it have a whole mm. different level of visual and like vocabulary expected of mm. them and but also given to them through through these illustrations. I mean, I'm looking at the front cover, Colin, and uh, uh, the accuracy of the hummingbird of the little blue gray streak or whichever blue butterfly this is. Um yeah the ladybug, the snake, and then this lovely suite of flowers. I mean, we're looking at lupin and echinacea and sunflower, and I think it's one of our native cardinalis. Is that the red? Exactly right. Yeah, Yeah, cardinal flower. I mean, so this is how well she did uh, with, with demonstrating, like, I am... I am visually reading without thinking of it. This is a native plant <laughs> habitat garden, and it's full mm-hmm. of these specific lives to our different areas that create this full picture of a habitat. Like it's 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 beautiful, and and she does it similarly. Like you go to the middle of the book. I'm gonna just shuffle a page here. In the middle of the book, you have this. Um, well, actually, I'm going to go to the very first page where you have this picture of one lazy day when the sun was hot and there was no shade to be found. Two bored siblings and their friend sat in their backyard wondering what to do. So this writing is paired with a picture of a little girl and two little boys, and they have all of the consumer-based accoutrements that we associate based on marketing uh, and the material world with keeping children happy. There is a trampoline, there is a tennis ball, there is a soccer ball, and there are there is a whole lot of turf grass. And these mm-hmm. children are bored out of their minds. And that is what sets off the story. And so just the subtext right there is so powerful. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that that was that was one of the goals of this story was to was to just get people to kind of rethink um, our landscaping practices and and what I think what we've been led to believe is the way that our yards should look, um, and then really what we have to do to to kind of challenge that narrative and and to push back against it. It's not much necessarily like if you go full circle to the end of the book, it's not it's not this family, it's not these kids ripping out every square inch of of that turf grass and and planting native they're they're just choosing a tiny little patch of it to transform into something that's that's more welcoming to wildlife and i think for me that's that's the that's the message that i was hoping people would take away which is just like you know 
one, if you build it, they will come. But two, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. It's not it's not black or white. It's it's just kind of uh, doing something. Right. It's moving just a little bit on this spectrum. And mm-hmm. a- another one of the uh, lovely illustrations, but is stark in its messaging, is towards the middle of the book where the children realize that they're these all of these delightful uh, beings are coming from over the fence in the yard next door. And there's an illustration of their backyard in overview uh, seen from Mm -hmm. above. And we're sort of looking from a squirrel's eye view uh, from the roof of one of the homes. And you see this great expanse of non-native monoculture turf grass with the um, not compelling trampoline and soccer ball, a gas-powered lawnmower, and a sprinkler uh, watering this grass. And from the vantage point of the squirrel, you can also see one, two, three, four, five, six other homes with their surrounding yards. And they are all monoculture, non-native, green, watered turf grass. Mm. And so the accuracy of that representation in our uh, suburban and exurban environments is, is startling. I mean, and if you are thinking about that hummingbird or that squirrel in this illustration, you realize that it's not particularly habitable for either Mm. of those creatures, but it's also not that habitable for these children. And Mm. then you circle, as you say, to the end of the book, and you see these little islands of gardens and flowers and creatures visiting, um, but you also see the adults and the children all together in this space, sharing conversation, sharing a cup of coffee, and all of a sudden, this is more habitable to the adults, to the children, to the wildlife, and also to this greater sense of just community and how we come together. I'm not sure I can say it better than that, Jennifer. That was pretty perfect. <laughs> I mean, it's an amazing, you you capture through pictures with Tiffany and through your words and the progression of this story, you capture what I try and capture on Cultivating Place all the time, which is that <laughs> when we garden better, we actually grow the world better. And this mm. proves it in a beautiful um you know, children's illustrated, either early reader or uh, early childhood read to book. And I just, Mm. I love it. It's not pounding anyone over the head. It is just, Mm. it is handing the narrative through a simple story of these children's delight. And then their Mm -hmm. um, very inherent motivation uh, to, to create this kind of space for themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it's been um, a really interesting experience to to have the book be out. The book came out in November um, of 2022, November first. So it's been out for just over a year, um, and it's been really fascinating to kind of interact with individuals. Now that the book kind of has its own legs and it's it's out in the world separate from me, but I'll do readings, for example, or, or I'll I'll talk to librarians or something, and 
and and some of the feedback I get from individuals who aren't gardeners and who aren't um, kind of in this space um, is is really eye opening. I had I had a couple of people ask me early on when the book was first released. You know, you know they would they would list some plants that are are, are named in the book. You know, like primrose or borage or um, you know plants that have names. <laughs> And and they would you know they would say things like well don't you think that's a little too challenging or too difficult for for children um, to to kind of learn these new names or, or or to be introduced to these types of things and at first I was kind of taken aback by those types of questions because it's for me it seems like you know it's why wouldn't we be exposing children to these types of plants instead of just generalizing oh this is a flower or, or just sticking with the ones that are more uh, kind of I don't know, charismatic or, or more in the mainstream. But um, I think part of the part of what I wanted to do with this book too, is just, you know, I, I know that there are kids out there who are really interested in plants and insects and wildlife. And you asked early earlier, you know, who was the target demographic from the, from the get go. And, and part of me, when I wrote this book, I was, I was writing it for the four year old version of my husband who, who tells stories of when he was a little kid and he was so much more of a naturalist than I ever was, but, uh, he tells a story of when he was four or five and he was at a family picnic in, in northern Minnesota and he saw a hawk moth um, nectaring at some flowers and, and he was so excited and he knew exactly what it was. And he told his family, like, come look at this hawk moth. And, and no one believed him. They all thought it was a hummingbird. And they kind of <laughs> just brushed, they just brushed him off as like, oh, this is Noah. He doesn't know, you know, he's he's a five-year-old. He doesn't know what he's talking about, but... Um, part of the story was knowing that there are other Noahs like that out there in the world who who do want to see really interesting pollinators um, in in the books that they read, and and really trying to to expand. I think what we what we expose children to when we think about insects and, and plants specifically, because I think you know there's great li- literature out there for children, but a lot of it tends to skew towards monarchs and honeybees. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 just wanting to do a little bit more than that. Yeah. Okay. Your bonus question, if you had five plants you would not want to live or garden without, let's say you were on a desert island for the rest of your life and you could only pick five, what would those five be, Colin, and why? Okay, let's, let's think about this. So are there, is it, it's a desert island, there's no plants there, there's no plants there. There's no plants there. You bring them all. It's a climate that will grow anything and everything. Okay. All right. Let's think about this. So I would probably, Sophie's choice. I would say, okay, let's start with the tree. I love oak trees. I think that I would bring oak trees with me. Um, They bring me joy. So we'll we'll start with some oak trees. Um, We're going to need some things to eat on this island. I think, you know, some people have green thumbs. Some people have brown thumbs. At least they self-identify as so. I I tend. I have a zucchini thumb. Um, so, in a good way or in a not in a good, good way? way? Okay. In a good. Well, it depends who you ask. I, <laughs> I tend to get crazy high zucchini yields, so I would probably I would probably bring at least one zucchini plant, and I would be just set for life. So we'll say zucchini, and I love tomatoes too. If we're, if we're talking about um, vegetable gardens, and then flowers, I would need some flowers too. Um, California poppies are, I think, my favorite flower. Um, there's just something, I think it's it's tied to those early memories of coming to California um, and seeing those orange oranges and 
the and the median strips and just kind of everywhere. Uh, it's a, it's a stunning flower to me. And what's I guess I get a fifth one. Ooh, let's go with. I mean, I'm staring at my book right now and I see those sunflowers. Um, sunflowers are also a really fun plant, but I'm picturing a garden that only has oak trees, zucchini, tomatoes, poppies. And sunflowers, and I'm not sure it's going to win any awards, but I think I would. <laughs> I'm not even sure how much wildlife would be attracted to that, but uh, I think that that would at least get me get me uh, some happiness points. <laughs> I, I think that's a lot. That's a great start. Starting with happiness points works for me. I, I'll give you an award. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> well. I wish every little seed of a book you put out there uh, to, to flourish and grow as as beautifully and uh, generously with the space around them. And I just thank you for sharing the book with me and for your time today and being a guest on Cultivating Place. Thank you so much, Jennifer. It was it was truly a pleasure to, to speak with you today. Colin Pine is an educator, a gardener, and the author of an early childhood picture book illustrated by Tiffany Everett and entitled The Garden Next Door. It is full of delight and meaning and available from River Horse Children's Books Press. For more information about Colin, including many pictures from his life and from this beautiful book, make sure to listen to the podcast version of Cultivating Place this week, which you can find over at cultivatingplace.com under the podcast tab. You can also find Cultivating Place wherever you get your podcasts. Join us again next week when, for the final episode of 2023, we're joined by British plantsman and ecological garden designer and advocate, Sid Hill. This is a plant-centered conversation reminding me that in the end, I always hope the plants get the final word. Join us. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you in advance and always for your support of this growing work. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Angel Haracha, weekly show transcripts by Doulis Transcription, and communications support from Deanna Newpert and Matt Valiga. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Places distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Tell your public radio station to find us there. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.